It's Tuesday, September 14th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The first trial in the Varsity Blues College admissions cheating scandal has kicked off. While 57 individuals have been charged so far and 46 of them have pled guilty or will plead guilty, just a handful are going to court. In this trial, we will see a former casino executive who paid $300,000 to get his daughter into USC and a private equity investor who paid over $1 million to get his kids into college. Melissa Korn, higher education reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for an opening argument. Next, New York City is now enforcing its vaccine requirement for restaurant employees and patrons who wish to eat indoors. Anyone aged 12 or older must show proof of at least one shot to eat or drink indoors at restaurants, bars, nightclubs, and more. Heather Haddon, restaurants reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how businesses and customers are divided over this new enforcement. Finally, the issue of homelessness continues to overtake many big cities across the country and homeless encampments are becoming a permanent part of the landscape. There are more encampments, they're popping up in new parts of cities, and are becoming communities where people live rather than temporary situations. Petula Dvorak, columnist at the Washington Post, joins us for why this is changing how cities look. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The scheme, they didn't know that they were allegedly part, part of this alleged conspiracy they were taken advantage of and that they didn't even know about these fake athletic profiles that Singer's team created for many clients. Joining us now is Melissa Korn, higher education reporter at The Wall Street Journal and co-author of Unacceptable, Privilege, Deceit, and the Making of the College Admission Scandal. Thanks for joining us, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Well, that's exactly what we're going to talk about, the college admission scandal, the first trial that got underway in all of this. We've talked about this for a lot of time already prosecutors charged 57 individuals in connection with the college admission scandal, 46 defendants. These are Hollywood TV stars, business titans, coaches, test proctors, everybody who was involved in this. About 46 of them have already pled guilty or agreed to plead guilty. So these are the kind of the first holdout, the big holdouts that wanted to challenge this whole thing. Melissa, you were in court for opening statements. Who is involved in this trial and, and, and how did it go? So we had uh, day one today, which was pretty exciting. We've been waiting for this for about two and a half years. Uh, The trial got pushed back quite a bit. So we have two parents on trial right now, and their defense attorneys and the prosecutors set forth two very different versions of what these payments were all about, whether it was a quid pro quo, a bribe to Rick Singer, this college counselor, and university coaches and others, or it was you know, a legitimate donation and these families were just being generous and maybe it would help their kid, but there was no sure guarantee. So we had Gamal Abdelaziz. He's a former Wynn Resorts executive. I think he paid $300,000 to help get his daughter into USC as a basketball recruit. And then we have John Wilson. He's a private equity investor. He had a few kids that uh, Rick Singer helped him. I think he paid over a million dollars for these arrangements. John Wilson worked with Rick Singer for a son who got into USC and then for his twin daughters a few years later. So obviously, you know, we've heard all the stories and how they paid exorbitant amount of sums. I think overall it was about $25 million that Rick Singer funneled through one of his charities or something to help get all of this stuff done. So how did opening arguments go? What did the defense, uh, what kind of angle were they trying to work with all of this? The defense 
lawyers who are former federal prosecutors. They're kind of top of their game folks. You know, people aren't messing around with who they got as their lawyers. They try to frame it as their clients being duped by a con man, that Rick Singer stole money from them, that he was a smooth talker who bamboozled them and you know, manipulated them. They didn't quite understand the extent of the scheme. They didn't know that they were allegedly part, part of this alleged conspiracy they were taken advantage of and that they didn't even know about these fake athletic profiles that Singer's team created for many clients. So that's, that's a big part of their argument. They're also trying to make clear that Rick Singer is a liar and a con man and it's hard to trust whatever he says. He's not going to be speaking at the trial, but there's a bunch of audio recordings, which we started to get to hear today. We've seen some transcripts, but here we're listening to these conversations between Rick Singer and clients, which is pretty exciting to hear. And on that note, the reason why we have those recordings is because Rick Singer started cooperating with the authorities once he saw everything was going down. So he was recording conversations that he was having with certain parents. That's where this audio is coming from, which is, like you said, exciting to hear because we get to hear it from them. One of the things that you mentioned in one of your articles that defense might be doing is a defense known as pure legal impossibility, this tactic that they want to use. How would that figure into this? The defense attorneys are trying a number of tactics, or they've hinted at a number of tactics. So this one, the pure legal impossibility, essentially means that this alleged fraud wasn't illegal because these payments, even if they were intended as bribes, didn't deprive USC of the honest work of its employees. Essentially, these payments were fulfilling what these USC employees thought was their duty to fundraise for the school. And that's a big part of the defense that argument that USC was, as one of the lawyers put it today, a fundraising machine. Fundraising was just so core to the jobs of everybody there that they weren't making USC the victim here. They were raising money for USC. As I mentioned earlier, 46 defendants have already pled or agreed to plead guilty. They're over here trying to fight it. They're high-profile businessmen, you know, and they're saying that they got duped. Other people already pled guilty to this. How does that figure into it? And then the prosecution, how did their opening arguments go? There's some limit to what the prosecutors can bring in regarding the other parents, but part of their argument is that this was a conspiracy, and it doesn't matter if these guys knew the others who pleaded guilty. They were all part of the same scheme. So one of those people who pleaded guilty Bruce Isaacson agreed to cooperate with prosecutors, and he testified today. He was the government's first witness, and he'll be on the stand again tomorrow. But, you know, the prosecutors are trying to lay this out as this absolutely was a conspiracy. The parents didn't necessarily run it and make every decision, but they were involved in it, and they knew about it, and they can't proclaim ignorance or innocence there. The prosecutors also today tried to kind of get out ahead of one of the defense arguments about Rick Singer and an assistant U.S. attorney making the opening statement said that, yes, Rick Singer is a liar. He told people lots of falsehoods. He even kind of messed around after he was caught by the feds and lied to them and deleted text messages. Like, he's not a Boy Scout, but he was very clear about one thing. He was very clear about what the payments were being used for. And that's the prosecutor saying that. Just saying that Rick Singer was a liar and a con man isn't enough of a defense. So we'll see, obviously, if a jury buys that. Melissa Korn, higher education reporter at The Wall Street Journal and co-author of Unacceptable, Privilege, Deceit, and the Making of the College Admission Scandal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. 
we're seeing great, great response. In fact, I'm hearing a lot from restaurateurs and people who love to go to restaurants, how much safer they feel knowing everyone's vaccinated. Joining us now is Heather Haddon, restaurants reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Thanks so much. Starting this week on Monday in New York City, they're going to begin enforcing the vaccine requirements for restaurants, for people that are going to eat at the restaurants and also the employees there. There's other cities across the country that are doing similar things. San Francisco requires you to have a shot to eat indoors. But in New York City, like I said, they just started to mandate this. So, Heather, help us walk through what we're seeing, who uh, needs to have proof of their shot, and then uh, how is it going to be enforced? Yeah, in New York City, anyone who's age 12 and above to dine inside a restaurant needs to have proof of vaccination. Uh, It's not enough in New York City to have a negative COVID test. They actually need to have proof that they've had one shot of the vaccine. So people can bring a copy of their card. They can bring one of the city or state apps where you can load in your proof. And then you also need to have an ID. So you need to have driver's license, passport or office or uh, school ID proving that it's actually you and you need to present that to the restaurant to be able to actually dine inside. Yeah, this is going to apply at restaurants, bars, nightclubs, hotels, food courts, malls, pretty much everywhere. Is it enough to have a picture of, let's say, your vaccine card? Because I know in some places you can just carry around a picture. That's fine. Does it have to be the actual card or one of these approved apps or will that picture just work? Yeah, just a picture is fine. Uh, you have to actually, has to be legible. You have to be able to read it because they don't want fraud. One aspect of this is a customer could actually have civil and criminal charges brought up against them if they are caught bringing in a fake vaccination card. You cannot fake your card. Um, that's a serious offense. So uh, that's why the ID, that's why, you know, a legible copy of your card or one of these apps where you've loaded it up already and it's all ready to go. So these establishments can face fines up to $1,000 for a first violation and then things will escalate after that. Who's going to be doing the enforcement on the restaurants themselves? So the city said they'll have uh, civilian enforcement going out from various agencies to check that signage is up, that there's a plan in place at restaurants to make sure they're actually abiding by this. And the actual law took effect last month, so they argue that restaurants have had time to comply with this, get used to it, figure out what it means for them, and now they can start enforcing it. How has the reaction been throughout this past month with all of that? You know, I know they kind of had time to do it. I know some restaurants were waiting until they were going to really start enforcing it all, but how has it been for the restaurants and the patrons themselves? It's really divided. So it depends on where you are in the city, who you are, you know, areas where tends to be higher vaccination rates tend to support this, tend to say, you know, the restaurants say their customers like this. They feel safer because of it. Areas in lower vaccination rate parts of the city tend to not like it as much. They see it as overreach. And, you know, a group of restaurants have actually sued the city for implementing this rule. They want to try to stop it. So it's it's really divided by who you're talking to. And you even mentioned the article, you know, in Times Square, very tourist heavy, obviously. There's a lot of pushback there. You know, there have people coming in from all over the country, obviously, with varying degrees of vaccination rates as well. And and they're pushing back because they could potentially limit a a lot of their customer base there. 
Yeah, it could really limit customer base. And I think that's the real concern for some of these restaurants who are worried about this, that, you know, they don't, they're so eager to keep their customers or so keep eager to keep their employees and anything that could possibly deter sales, possibly deter workers from being in their restaurants, then that's a real concern for them. And so we'll see, you know, we'll see if it starts to get more, people get more used to this or not. And there's only a few like minor exceptions to the vaccine rule. Uh, I guess they said that you can go into a place for about 10 minutes or so, you know, let's say you're picking up food or just going to the restroom or something like that. So there's some minor exceptions. So they are allowing for takeout. So if someone wants to come to the restaurant and just pick up something quickly, use the bathroom, pay a bill, that is fine. They just need to wear a mask. So people still have to wear a mask, but they don't necessarily have to have vaccination proof. And the city is saying that is an alternative for people who don't necessarily want to abide by these rules. Heather Haddon, restaurants reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. It's interesting and and a little bit charming in seeing how they're surviving and creating communities. But it's really tragic because it shows that there's still no way for people to get unconditional housing in these areas. Joining us now is Petula Dvorak, columnist at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Petula. Thank you so much for having me. Wanted to talk about the issue of homelessness for a moment. It's an issue, obviously, across the entire country, but take any big city in the country right now, and you'll definitely see an increased presence of homeless people, most notably the homeless encampments. Sometimes people call them tent cities, where you'll see rows and rows of makeshift dwellings, and they're becoming more prevalent in newer parts of the cities. You're definitely seeing more of them. They're becoming, as you mentioned in the article, places where people live, their own communities now. So, Patula, you recently wrote something about this. What are we seeing out there? There were always encampments. That's something that has, you know, there's always been a small marginalized population in America. And we see those folks in D.C. here. They were, you know, a little bit under overpasses near Union Station. And there were certain places, but those were always places that were kind of a place to sleep. Tents zipped up during the day. Now I feel there's, like you said, sprawling communities. There's one encampment that's really grown in Georgetown, which is near the Kennedy Center. You can assume just from those two words that it's not an area necessarily known for hosting encampments, where I saw a guy had a a dining room table with six seating for six, upholstered dining chairs, a Queen Anne dresser that he had positioned just so outside the tent, ping pong tables, grills. Folks are, are living and creating these small cities. There are mayors in each of these encampments. It's interesting and and a little bit charming in seeing how they're surviving and creating communities. But it's really tragic because it shows that there's still no way for people to get unconditional housing in these areas. As you mentioned, I I live in Los Angeles, so I see Mm -hmm. a lot of this. One of the most notable ones that I always see, it's about a homeless encampment about a quarter block long. It's right on the main street and it could just be decorations, but it's lined with uh, flags of many different countries. It almost looks like it's a mini UN there. That's kind of what I think every time I see it. And and, and we're seeing that in a lot of places. So why are we seeing this happening? Because we're seeing a lot of politicians, a lot of local officials throwing a lot of money out of this, at this, trying to create housing. But why are we seeing more of this? 
From what I can tell, there are a few factors. Of course, with the pandemic, their bottom fell out for a, a whole cast of workers who were probably day laborers or maybe uh, manual laborers in restaurants, places that closed right away. And the bottom just fell out to these folks. It took Washington a little while to get rent assistance, eviction prohibitions. It took a while. And, you know, for folks living from paycheck to paycheck, which is actually a huge amount of Americans, uh, more than we all think, and not necessarily all the people that you suspect are, are living paycheck to paycheck. But for folks like that, you know, a couple of weeks of missed income, uh, the bottom really can fall out. Two, a huge population of homeless folks are actually more like houseless folks. And they couch surf from family to family, friends to friends. That's a really huge population here in D.C. That's not necessarily the chronic homeless that you see panhandling on the street, but they're folks with jobs. The bottom fell out for a lot of those folks because the people who hosted them no longer did, thanks to quarantining and the pandemic. Another thing we saw here, we had at least 500 cases within a few of the shelters here of COVID-19 positive tests. And just the first couple of weeks when I went around some of the soup kitchens, folks said, I'm not going in the shelter. It's too dangerous. That's an incubator. I'm more comfortable outside. Right. I mean, Um, the open air, I guess, does kind of provide for that a little bit more (laughs) of a safety in that sense. But, uh, you know, so what happens with the political chatter surrounding this? Because it is a very complicated issue. I mean, we can't diminish that. It's so hard. But in Venice Beach, California, right, there was a Mm -hmm. a huge problem with this bunch of tents all over the place, a bunch of outcry from business owners right there on the Venice boardwalk. And it mobilized a lot of people. There was, uh, you know, a months long outreach by police, park rangers and and other people. Mm -hmm. They provided a lot of people with housing. They moved them out and, and they cleaned it up for a moment. Right. So what happens on the other end of this, the political chatter? How how do we how is it being approached that way? The thing I always hear is from folks is it's a it's a problem with Democrat run cities. It's a Democratic uh, political problem because all of the cities with Democratic mayors have this. But it's not true. I went point by point and found a lot of cities with Republican mayors. Oklahoma City, Miami, Fort Worth are having the same problems. Some of the mayors will say no tolerance. Let's get rid of the encampments. That wasn't so easy because the CDC asked mayors not to disband those encampments because that in a lot of cases would uh, spread if anyone was COVID positive. A lot of these encampments had healthcare workers who were keeping track of each of those folks. And uh, if they disbanded those encampments, they'd lose track of them. So that was a difficult point. But to your greater point, Folks don't like them. You don't have to be political, kind-hearted, or ideological one way or the other to be disturbed by seeing people living out on the street. And so it's a mixed bag because some folks really just want to get rid of them for their property values, and some folks see the horror in in uh, communities of people living without uh, without proper shelter. So how to get rid of it? It's a difficult thing, and it's got to be a nationwide effort, I think. Petula Dvorak, columnist at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's an important issue, and I really appreciate you taking it on. That's it for today. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.